Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. We provide wisdom for personal growth and healthy relationships. Stick with us and you'll gain practical tools and insights that will help you be a healthier and happier you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy podcast. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We've been in the series on depression, and so far we've covered major depressive disorder and its criteria. We looked at other diagnoses that also include depression in it. In the last episode, we talked about how depression can impact your daily life. And today we're going to be talking about 10 tips to help you manage and treat your depression. So the first tip we have is psychoeducation. Now, if you listen to our previous podcast on depression, you already have some of that step done. Now, psychoeducation is just learning and understanding the psychology behind what's happening with you if you're struggling with depression or if a loved one's struggling with depression. And an important thing to note about depression, and I think with all mental disorders, is that these are not things you can just snap out of. They're not something you can just choose not to have. They require work and effort. And the thing I always like to tell my clients is that when you have a symptom of depression or anxiety or something along those lines, it's basically like the check engine light coming on in your car. It's telling you, it's warning you, there's some type of problem that needs to be addressed. And if you don't address that problem, it's going to continue to get worse down the line. So with depression, it's not just, oh man, I need to just choose to feel happier or I just need to choose to focus on better things. It's a multitude of different things that need to be done in order to move yourself away from depression. So the feelings, thoughts, and behaviors that you do exhibit because of depression, these are not by choice of the person who has that. You have this strong emotional draw towards these things that's almost like a black hole kind of sucking you in. It's not that you have zero choice in the matter, but that the matter is very difficult for you to choose something else. Yeah, I would agree. By understanding what depression is, it helps you to have a lot more grace for yourself and for others. Because we all wish that it was something that you could just snap out of it or have enough willpower to power through it. But that's not the way it works. There's a video on YouTube that I know we've referenced before, and it's Bob Newhart's Stop It. And it's an old SNL skit, and if it was as easy as that, we wouldn't even have jobs as therapists. But if we could stop it or snap out of it, we would. But because it doesn't work that way, it's important to educate yourself and understand what part of this is the depression and where do I have control and what can I really put my efforts towards to help me overcome and treat the depression. Tip number two is exercise. It's important to get regular physical activity or movement, and this doesn't have to be an intense workout every day. This can even be a 20-minute mental health walk where you just get outside and you get your body moving and you walk around. And this can help boost your mood, but it also serves as a distraction from your worries and the things that you're just sitting and thinking about. And I think an important thing to note, especially when you have depression, lacking the motivation to get up and do exercise is a very real thing. But I also think that people have a misunderstanding about what motivation is. I think a lot of times people determine that motivation is the strong emotional urge to do the activity. But that's not really what motivation is. Motivation is the desire for the outcome of the activity. I don't really want to do this activity, but I want the end result of the activity. And so if you're struggling with depression and you don't want to feel that way, you're not going to feel excited or happy to jump out of bed and go exercise 
but that end goal of the activity, which is to alleviate symptoms of depression. It's actually very interesting. I was just listening to this lady the other day. She's kind of like a holistic internal medicine kind of person, but I was listening to her and she was talking about helping people with depression. And one of her things was having them walk for like six to 12 hours a day. And that's like astronomical. I've never heard anybody do this. I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but I was thinking about why might this be beneficial to people? And I was thinking that, oh, well, while you're walking for such a long period of time, you don't have any electronic distractions, which by the way, if you have more than an hour of screen time a day, at least in kids, it increases anxiety and depression symptoms. And so it gets you away from the screen. Plus when you're doing the walking motion, it creates this left-right bilateral stimulation, which is associated with EMDR and helping people process through their negative emotional states. And so if you're walking for that long and you don't have screens, you're going to be thinking about the things that are upsetting you. Plus you're getting this left-right bilateral stimulation. And then you may actually be doing some EMDR on yourself when you're doing it over this long course and period of time. So as much as it seems like a very difficult task to get up and exercise, and if you heard me say six to 12 hours a day, and that made you freak out, just like Ruth was saying, even if you start off where it's something like five minutes, if you could just get up and walk for even five minutes, if five minutes is too much, get up and walk for one minute, whatever you can stomach, that's enough for you to start moving or doing something in that vein is better than doing nothing. So if whenever we're saying something that you should do that can help you out with the depression, just keep dialing it back, keep dialing it back until it's something where you're like, okay, I could do that. Next, we want to address a healthy diet. So the patterns that we engage in with our foods and the things that we're consuming could definitely have an effect on our mental health. Now, disclaimer, right? We're not nutritionists, so this is not our area of expertise. But for example, something that's very well known in the mental health field is that if you consume too much caffeine, that it's going to make you feel anxious and uncomfortable. One of the first things you tell clients when they're telling you they have anxiety is telling them to reduce any caffeine content that they have. And it's an easy way to kind of jump out of the gate and then start feeling better right away. So specifically with their diet. Now, I know I mentioned this back in the first podcast we were doing on depression, but it's important to be aware of the fact that you can either have two results when you're depressed with your relationship with food. One, you can overeat in order to gain comfort from the eating. Or two, you can undereat because you're not noticing any of the physical body cues about hunger because you're feeling so depressed that it's overwhelming the sense or desire to eat. So when you're feeling depressed, making sure that you're having your regular meal times is important in order to manage just your physical energy. Because if you're not eating enough, then it's going to make you feel slower lethargic. But also if you're eating too much, you can get the same result where you're feeling tired and exhausted all the time. And it's contributing to the feeling or sense of depression. But certain diet patterns, such as the Mediterranean diet, which is high in vegetables, fruits, nuts, whole grains, and lean proteins, are identified as possibly helping people with depressive symptoms. So if you haven't been managing your diet, which is very easy not to do when you're feeling depressed, getting on an eating pattern that includes something along the lines of the Mediterranean diet can actually help you to feel better also. Number four is mindfulness. And mindfulness involves focusing on the present moment, what's happening right now, while you're calming, acknowledging and accepting your thoughts and your feelings. And it's really staying in the present without judgment. And that's important because when we are judging ourselves, we begin to feel guilt and shame and condemnation. And that helps to dig us deeper and deeper into this depression 
because then we feel embarrassed. We have all these shoulds in our minds. I should be getting up. I should be exercising. And then we feel guilty and shameful because we're not doing it. And so mindfulness really helps us to be in the present. It's helpful maybe to journal and write things down. And it's understanding that because you're dealing with depression and you're struggling with depression, it doesn't take away value from who you are. And so as you're practicing mindfulness, you're not judging your value or the things that you're experiencing. You're just looking at it and you're recognizing that this is where I'm at and this is what I'm experiencing. Number five is to limit your alcohol and drug use. Now, I know if you're struggling with depression, that might feel like a very unpleasant thought because reducing your substance use makes you feel like, oh man, now I don't have any escape or any way to get away from these feelings. But especially with alcohol, when you're using alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. And so if you're constantly showering your brain with a chemical that's a depressant, you're encouraging the feelings later. So even though it might give you this escape now, you're prolonging and you're exacerbating the difficulty. And the other thing is, even with other substances, right? So if you're smoking marijuana on a regular basis, that escapism that you're taking when you're smoking on a regular basis, all it's doing is it's pushing those emotions off to another day. And you're not processing, you're not working on, you're not trying to change it. And so then what happens is you get to this place where you almost constantly need to be high to avoid your feelings. And so then what happens is you're just making your world very small. So when you're using substances to try to avoid how you're feeling, you're putting yourself into just this smaller and smaller box where you're always going to have to be using to avoid how you feel. So if you're not feeling good, using those substances is definitely not a good coping skill or strategy. Number six is sleep hygiene. And we've talked about sleep on multiple different episodes because good sleep habits are so important making sure that your sleep is restful and, if possible, uninterrupted. I know there are babies and other things. And so trying to get to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, whether or not you have something to do, it's important to get on a sleep schedule, even for yourself. I know we talk about sleep schedules for babies and children, but it's important as adults that we're also watching this because it impacts us and affects our daily life in so many different ways. This also jumps back to the staying away from substances. If you're regularly using substances such as alcohol or marijuana or anything else, those substances negatively impact your sleep pattern. So if you're using any type of substance and you have a heart rate monitor, what you'll find are nights where you're using a substance, it elevates and increases your heart rate, not giving you as restful a sleep. So even though alcohol, for example, is a depressant, it'll actually increase your heart rate while you're sleeping. But if you're sober and you haven't used anything, your heart rate will dip much lower. So your body is more at rest. So you get more restful sleep. Now, I know people sometimes have a hard time falling asleep, so they want to use substances in order to assist with that. But again, the more you do that, you might be solving the initial problem of falling asleep. But then all throughout the night, you're getting a worse quality of sleep. Number seven that we're going to talk about, I think, is also connected with this sleep pattern, which is light therapy. So getting exposure to sunlight or white light, especially early in the morning when you first wake up, is important to help set your circadian rhythm. And your circadian rhythm is a pattern of heating and cooling that your body goes through that helps you set up times where you're going to feel more awake and times when you're going to feel more sleepy. So if when you first wake up, you're not getting very much sun exposure, like your curtains are drawn, the room is very dark, 
that's going to make it harder for your body to set that circadian rhythm. But if you throw open the blinds or you go outside and you sit in the sun in the morning, right, that's helping your body to understand, okay, it's morning time now. And it starts to work at setting that circadian rhythm. Okay, now we're starting at this wake cycle here. And then when you go consistently enough, then coming on towards the nighttime, it'll help you be at this place where, okay, now we're going into a sleep cycle. And it will assist you if you're having difficulties with sleep and get into a healthier relationship with sleep. But also the other part of it is that just regular light exposure helps out with your mood. If you're in a constantly dark atmosphere, it can feel relaxing to a certain degree, but also it can make you struggle more with thoughts of feeling sad or depressed. But if you're in more of a bright area or outside in nature, right, it helps you to have more of a hopeful positive feeling or sensation or thought pattern. And also it's important to know that when you get sun exposure, that your body also produces vitamin D, which many people are lacking because they spend too much time inside. And this is especially helpful for those with seasonal affective disorder, which happens most often in the fall and the winter, but that's not always the case. So if you suffer from seasonal affective disorder, this might be a really good one to look at and to start with. Tip number eight is to look at your social support and make sure that you build up or have a support system that can really walk alongside you. This can be friends and family. It can be a support group. It could be a meeting or people at your church, a Bible study group, but finding people that are safe and healthy to be around. People that encourage you and lift you up, but also can tell you hard truths when you need to hear it. And if you don't already have a support system set up, in order to start to build one, you're going to need to put yourself out there and maybe trying to participate in social activities even when you don't feel like it because connecting with others can help you to feel better and to feel a lot more supported because going through depression can be very lonely. It's important to surround yourself and really have the support system. And I think something that's important to note about this is that depression is going to cause you to want to socially isolate. And it's very dangerous to give in to that desire. So even though you don't necessarily want to put yourself out there, you don't want to be around people, you don't want to share or be vulnerable, those are the things that are important in order to connect with people. So just having people around isn't enough. You have to have that vulnerability aspect where you're actually talking to them about deep, important issues. You're talking to them about your struggles. You're willing to receive help from them. And that creates a deeper bond. I always ask people when they feel socially isolated, I say, hey, who's somebody who you know the best? Who's somebody who you trust the most? And they say, oh, I, I got this person and I really, really trust them. I love and care about them so much. And then I always like to ask this follow-up question is, how much do they know about you? And whenever somebody said, oh yeah, I really trust this person, I know this person, they always tell me this. They're like, oh, they know everything. They, they know everything about me. And this is a very common theme. So if you wanna be close to people and connected with people, hiding these things you might be uncomfortable with or embarrassed about, you're actually preventing yourself from having a deeper connected relationship with people. Now, I'm not telling you to randomly go up to the store clerk and share with them your deepest, darkest secrets, but it's a process you go through where you're working at learning to trust somebody by letting them in on more and more of who you are. And the more you do that, the deeper of a connection you get until you get to a place where you feel like, I can implicitly trust this person. And it is a process and it does take time, but if you start working on it, you're going to get there sooner than if you don't start working on it at all. The next category we're going to talk about is therapy. So one of the important things I think about therapy, especially if you're struggling with depression, 
is accountability and assistance towards doing all these things that we've just talked about and having somebody who's there and on your side and that you can trust kind of right out of the gate. And so we just talked about connecting with people and it could be difficult. When you go to a therapist, a part of the connection process is you don't have to worry so much about all the things that you tell them because you have that confidentiality and you know they've talked to other people who've struggled with the same thing. So then a lot of times the clients go in with this more implicit level of trust. Don't get me wrong, it still takes time to build up trust with your therapist, but because of the dynamic of the relationship and what you're there doing, you're much more likely to create this deeper relationship because you are going in and you are being vulnerable as a regular part of therapy. But then as you're going through it, your therapist helps to keep you accountable to doing these things or helping to problem solve. A part of depression is this feeling of hopelessness. And so when you have that feeling of hopelessness, it can cause you to not even try to do the things that are important towards helping you to feel better when you're in a depressive state. But your therapist is able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if you're not. And so they can help to encourage you and to keep you on the path, and they can help set up a tailored approach to you to help you guide through the process to end up making it to your end goal. And so just like I said earlier, if you're feeling like, oh man, doing this thing for even five minutes is too much, all right, well, let's dial it back. And they can help give you permission and education that can help make you feel better about those choices, even if in the initial phases, your mind is kind of poo-pooing or attacking these processes and trying to discount them, your therapist can help you reframe and think about that in a more healthy way to encourage you to follow through with the things that are going to help you to recover from depression. Another benefit of therapy is that they can really help you to figure out and learn some really good coping skills. And some of the things we've already talked about, exercise, eating right, those are coping skills for sure, but they can help to broaden your toolbox of coping skills. And one of the things I like to do with my clients is to have a coping jar because sometimes when you're in the midst of a deep depression or when you're having a panic attack, if you're having anxiety, you don't necessarily sit and think, okay, in therapy, I learned this, this, and this. And you don't think through the steps and what your coping skills are at that moment. And so having a jar where you have just strips of paper with all these different coping skills that you can just pull from is helpful at times. And it can be something as simple as send a text to Susie or paint your nails or go for a 10-minute walk. And so if you have this jar of all the things that you can do, it's very helpful to have those coping skills already thought out and written out in things that'll work specifically for you. And so if you don't already have a coping list, there's a lot of great ones out there but also talk through it with your therapist to figure out what are some great coping skills that you can use. Another therapy that you can use, now this is not a psychotherapy, but it was an interesting one I had one client go through. So I'm not necessarily fully endorsing this, but I did see a dramatic marked improvement in client when she used this. And the type of therapy I believe was called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now this process, she had to go in multiple times a week, I believe for two weeks but went from being markedly depressed to not depressed at all. Now, a caveat to this is the process did only seem to work for three months, but three months of alleviation of symptoms is significant. And so if you choose to explore or look at this type of therapy, you definitely want to continue going into therapy and continue to work at getting these healthier habits or lifestyles implemented or even going in and continuing to work on trauma so that when the process does wear off or if it does wear off, that then you're not just dropped right back into it. And this was the experience with my client where it was good for three months and then boom, 
back into heavy depression. And so you definitely want to make sure that if you do this, you're using this as something that's alleviating symptoms for now, but recognizing, okay, I need to make sure I still keep up with these healthy lifestyle changes. Now I have more energy and desire to do this. And so I can go out and try to connect with people. I can try to get on a healthier sleep cycle. I can start exercising more. And so it gives you almost this extra boost that can help you to do all the things that you need to do if you're struggling with depression. Now, the other type of therapy we do want to talk about, and I'm sure you've heard us talk about this a million times, but EMDR therapy. All the stuff we were just talking about requires a lot of effort from you. And if you're very depressed or a family member is very depressed, it can be very difficult to force yourself to do these things. Now, the nice thing about EMDR therapy is that you don't have to go out and do all of these things in order to help yourself feel better. You're doing the work in the office with the therapist, and when you finish the work, you're going to feel differently. So you don't necessarily have to force yourself, but what it is doing is it's going in and it's really working on those trauma points that you have. And even if you don't think you have trauma points, everybody has some level of trauma. And when you go and you work on those trauma points, it helps alleviate the negative or oppressive feelings of depression. And when those are released, then you just feel differently. Then you have the motivation and energy to go out and do more healthy things. And so if listening to this, you feel like, oh gosh, I don't think there's anything that I can do on this list, you can get an EMDR therapist, you start working through that process, and then you can get the alleviation of the root cause of the feelings of depression, which are those trauma points. And tip number 10 is medication. And so I'm not one to push medication right off the bat, but there definitely is a place for medication. And antidepressants can be very effective. And there are a lot of different antidepressants out there and so definitely talk to your psychiatrist or your healthcare provider that can help you kind of navigate the options out there. And so I do think that when you're experiencing a deep depression, medication can definitely stabilize you to the point where it's beneficial in therapy, where you are in therapy and you're also taking medication so that as you're working through things in therapy, you're able to progress and you have the energy and the focus to be able to work through things. Now, I think an important thing to note when you're talking about medications is these are symptom management. They are not solving the problem that is causing the underlying mental health condition. And there's been new research that has come out where we originally used to think depression was a chemical imbalance in the brain. But this new research is coming out that this is not really the case. As a matter of fact, our understanding of chemical imbalance in the brain as the cause of mental health disorders was only ever a theory, and they never really had a lot of substantial evidence to back up the fact that that's what the case was. But they did find that taking things like SSRIs and things like that had the potential to alleviate symptoms of depression. But realistically, what they're finding out is that a lot of the mental health conditions that we're struggling with are the root cause of trauma. But if you're really struggling and you're feeling very low and you can't make yourself do anything again on this list, getting into your psychiatrist and getting a medication to alleviate some of the symptoms allows you then to have more of the energy to go after the root cause of the issue. I've definitely had plenty of clients who have been on medications. We've done treatment and we worked on it and then they've been able to get off the medications and then still be able to feel healthy and happy on the other side of that. But if you can't do anything and you can't put your feet on the ground to do any of these activities that we talked about, or even the thought of going in to see your therapist feels like a bridge too far, getting on a medication can, again, give you a little bit more of that boost so that it's easier for you then to engage in these activities that are going to help you move away from depression. 
And so depression can be a very serious mental health condition, and it's important for you to reach out when you need help. And so remember, if you're feeling suicidal, it's important to seek help immediately. You can call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by just dialing 988 from anywhere in the U.S., or you can use the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. And by doing so, you'll be able to text with a volunteer crisis counselor. But we definitely want you to get the help and the support that you need. All right, you guys, have a great day. And remember, your mind is a powerful thing. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful, we'd love for you to take some time and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. If you have a question or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group, Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast, and let us know. Disclaimer, although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. Please seek professional help if you're struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 if you are contemplating suicide.